You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Your challenge, if you choose to accept it, is this. Let's go, let's go! Show up on day one, work out with us for 30 minutes, feel good right away. Yo! Repeat five days a week for three weeks. Three weeks? Five workouts a week. We're a body, and we call that a body block. You pick the block, and you're going to love the experience. On week four, this part is really important. Take the week off. Seriously, we mean it. Rest. Go on vacation. Or try something new. Maybe some yoga. Notice you're not holding on to any tension here. Or a dance class. Get sexy with it, daddy. You do you. And then start again. Be committed to this process. Choose a new body block each month. Get a new challenge each month. Have fun every day. Avoid burnout. You're not going to quit on yourself today. This is how you reach your goals. You in? There is nothing that we can't do if we work together. Sign up for your first body block today. Visit body.com for a free trial. That's B-O-D-I dot com. Are you ready to get started? Hey, everybody, it's Adam, live and in person for you. Hey, everybody, it's Adam, wonder who he'll interview. From all my children to Mama's family, I'm beyond excited to be catching up with Emmy Award winner Dorothy Lyman, whose new virtual play, We Have to Hurry, starring Alfred Molina, will be streaming June 5th and June 6th. When we come back, we'll be talking with Dorothy about her legendary career in television, branching out from acting to playwriting, and much more. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Dorothy Lyman. Hi, Dorothy. Well, hi. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's so great to talk to you again. Oh, I know it. You too. You too. The last the internet, time... it's an amazing thing. It is. Now, where, where are you still in Florida? No, no, no. I, uh, I'm in my apartment on the Upper West Side in New York City. And uh, I also have a home out in Connecticut where, where I keep my horses and some hens which give us some eggs and i live next door to my 11 year old granddaughter Tallulah, and my son and my beautiful daughter-in-law and my ex joe tillinger is about eight miles away so we've been a little compound for the for the duration of this pandemic oh terrific terrific well last time we spoke we were uh talking about your play um in the bleak midwinter so now yes. I'm very excited to talk to you about your new play, We Have to Hurry. Um, but before we get into your play, I always like starting my interviews off with this question. So X amount of years from now, when someone mentions Dorothy Lyman, what do you hope people say about you or remember about you? Well, first of all, that she was really funny. <laughs> you know, I've really enjoyed doing the sitcoms and making people laugh all these years. Um, I'd like them to remember that I had the first all-female control room for a sitcom during the years that I directed The Nanny. You know, I directed 75 consecutive episodes of Fran Drescher's wonderful sitcom. Yes. Um, I'd like them to remember me for that. And um, yeah, and I would like them to feel that I had been a positive influence, you know, that they remember me fondly and not negatively. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't think anybody could remember you negatively. You always bring a positive light into everything you do. Oh, bless your heart. Thank you. You're welcome. So um, before we get into 
some of your television work. Let's talk about your new play, We Have to Hurry. Uh, yes, yes, indeed. So, you know, uh, I, the first play you mentioned in the bleak midwinter was about a dairy farmer's widow whose kids um, encourage her to move down to a retirement community to, into a condo in Florida. And uh, at the end of that play, she goes off to Florida. So everybody said to me, gee, we really wonder whatever happened to that gal. You know, she was such a great, great person. I wonder how she's enjoying life in Florida. So I sat down to write that play. Um, and it had six characters in it and it was all inside the condo people were eating and then then the pandemic happened and I thought well nobody's going to produce a play where actors have to be you know kissing and hugging and breathing the same air so I cut out all the other characters and only left the two characters on opposite balconies in a condo uh, outside on their balcony. So they are separated by time and space, but, uh, and by the pandemic, uh, but they managed to create a relationship and come together in spite of everything that's keeping them apart. And uh, they are two people in their seventies, two older folks who realize that there's still a lot of living left to do. And um, it's, Oddly enough, for something that's set in a time of such national crisis for us, uh, it does have a very uplifting, hopeful, positive message. I really tailor-made it for Zoom so that it would you wouldn't miss that you weren't in the theater when you watched it. At least that's what I'm hoping. And uh, so far, we have done um, five of these Zoom readings. That's um, where I was able to hone the play and do the rewrites and... Uh, make it uh, what it is today. And hopefully people will watch it on June 5th and 6th. Um, our plan is to do one a month, as long as people still want to watch Zooms and uh, with a different rotating cast, you know, with different two big stars each time, like Love Letters did, if you remember that. Yes. Uh, they, yeah. And also I believe a play called The Exonerated uh, changed casts. Uh, yes. So, and, and I, you know, the first play I ever produced and directed was called A Couple of White Chicks Sitting Around Talking in 1980 by a playwright named John Ford Noonan. And um, we, we did that. Sue Sarandon and Eileen Brennan opened the play for us. Then Dixie Carter and I took the roles. And mm. then, um, oh my gosh, Ann Archer and Joe Beth Williams and Louise Lasser. Uh, you know, we, we had all these wonderful women in it. And then uh, Elizabeth Ashley and Susan Anton did a uh, tour of the play. Um, so that, that was the first time I ever produced and directed anything. And I managed to catch the brass ring the first time out. I was really lucky with that project. Did you ever hear of that play? Did you remember that at all? That one I, I didn't cause uh, I was, I was five at that point. So I wasn't oh, yeah. going to theater. No, no, I was watching at that point. Uh, I was, I was, probably watching you on Mama's Family. Or was that 83? Yeah, uh, 81 to 83, I was on All My Children. Yes, okay, so yeah. then. And then uh, 80, basically 83 till 1990, we were doing Mama's Family. Yes, that's when I was, wa that's when I was watching you. Now I saw, um, oh. I saw one of your readings. I saw a reading of, um, of uh, We Have to Hurry, um, but at that time, I saw it last year uh, when you were in it, and um, oh my God, Tim Jerome, yes. Tim Jerome, yes. loved him. Yeah, 
And I thought it was very well written. Um, I loved how you adapted it for Zoom. And I think it's great that you're writing uh, a play for in for older characters because we're so focused. I mean, in this day and age, I just feel like we're so focused on uh, people uh, under 30. And we need, and there are so many terrific actors that have been working since since the 70s, 80s, and continue to work today. And we need more pieces for them. So, I mean, we're so lucky that you are providing a voice for for an older generation of actors. Oh, well, thank you. You know, that's really my mission. I, I, I want to write for me and my friends. You know, um, I started to write a few years back because I wasn't seeing any parts that were really good, you know, for, for my age. Uh, yes, you're the psychiatrist or the judge or the, uh, the social worker or, you know, uh, sort of two days work on, on a series, you know. So um, this is a much more satisfying medium to work in for me right now. Yes. The first play that I saw you in was My Kitchen Wars. That was in 2003. Yes. And so um, actually my, my company, Stuffed Olive, produced it and my friend uh, Eleanor Renfield directed it. That was the first play I saw you in, which was very exciting. And um, and then I got to see. Uh, uh, so it's been what, two, two or three years now since uh, in the bleak midwinter. Yes, that was, I believe, in 2018. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. You and Abigail Hawk. Uh, yes. We did the Love Abby. What a yes. great gal. Terrific. Yeah. Terrific. Um, so let's talk about your, your television career, because, I mean, it has been, it's, it's, it's legendary. I mean, you were on All My Children. You were on Mama's Family. And, and as we talked a little earlier, you directed 75 episodes of The Nanny. So, um I mean, what do you, when you look back on your television career, I mean, what do you, what do you think about and um, what do you hope people, um, you know, remember about each of your characters? Well, I, I think mostly about Carol Burnett, who, who made it all uh, really happen for me. She and Vicky used to watch all my children during their lunch hour from the Carol Burnett show. And uh, they'd watch it together and they really got a kick out of me. And so when Carol didn't want to do Carol Burnett show anymore, she wanted to create a show for Vicky that would also keep the 200 crew that had worked for 11 years on the Burnett show together and working, see. So they created the show for Vicky and she and Vicky said, why don't we invite that, that, that kid from New York to come out here and do it with us, you know? And so one day my phone rang in, in this very apartment that I still live in, in oh New York. Um, and, and, you know, this woman said, hi, it's Carol Burnett, Dorothy, you know, I'm like, yeah, okay, which one of my stupid girlfriends, you know, is doing this, you know, and she goes, no, it really is Carol, we love your work, we, you know, we're doing a series for Vicky, and so she brought me out to Hollywood, where I had always wanted to be, and, um, and the show ran, you know, and has become classic television, and I learned so much from Carol. She did four episodes with us, but she remained a friend. But what I learned most from her was about graciousness. And really, you know, before she did a job, she would ask for a list of the crew and she would memorize everybody's name and their positions so that she could step onto the set and really, um, really make everybody feel valued and uh, cherished. And so, um, 
you know, I've tried to bring that to each role I've played, but also as a director, you know, um, it's, it's difficult. When I was directing, there were only nine women who were doing four camera sitcoms in the director's guild. Uh, they would send lists around uh, every year and there were just nine of us listed on there. And um, so I, I believe I was a bit of a trailblazer and I did ask for the people that sat next to me in the booth, the assistant director and the technical director to be women. And the producer honored my requests. So we, we, we had a great team because the director needs so much support. Yes. And why was it important for you to have, uh, to have the, the, the assistant director and the technical director yes. be women? Yes. Well, um, when I first started, there were two men in those jobs who didn't understand why me were, got, were sitting in the director's chair and not them. And mm. they were not helpful. And so I said to the producer, when they offered me the entire next season, I said, if I'm going to be here, you know, 26 shows in a row, we've got to do something about those two hostile guys who are sitting next to me. And uh, she said, well, what would you like, you know, how, how, what should we do? And I said, well, aren't there a couple of women who do that job? You know, let's offer some opportunities to women. And um, in those days, there weren't really very many women. You know, I remember when I was doing the soaps here in New York in the um, 70s, you know, I remember the first time I ever saw a woman behind a camera on the floor. And it was a stunning sight. And she was the only woman on that crew at ABC. But uh, it's changed a lot now for women, for people of color. Um, and, and that is just wonderful because that reflects the world. And what, what was it like to come on to the nanny? Um, you know, so the show was already running and you, you came on to direct. What is it I like? Came to on at, the, at the end of the second season. Yes, mm -hmm. I came on at the end of the second season. Um, the show, I must say, when I when you look back at them, the first season, you know, is a little tentative. It got it got so much better as time went on. You know, uh, Fran and I met because I created a little waiver theater space out of a warehouse in, in Hollywood in uh, 1980. And I produced um, new plays and hired women directors to direct a series of new plays. And I gave acting classes during the weekdays to pay for these productions. <laughs> and Fran, who was... A struggling actress at that point came to take my acting class because she had enjoyed watching me on Mama's Family. And so at that point, she and her husband, Pete, were, um, you know, they were writing and they had a, a crouton business. They were baking, not frying croutons. And she eventually sold that business to Pioneer Foods. You know, she said, if we don't make it in show business, this is going to be my, my career is food. And, um, and now she's got that wonderful cancer schmancer organization, yes. you know, which is just so, so great. It provides such wonderful health uh, advice to people and fun stuff. So, um, so Franny and I had a relationship and actually when she and Pete wrote the nanny, they wrote Lauren Lane's part for me, but the network felt I was too old. They mm. wanted somebody more Fran's 
generation, not mine, because they have to think that the show is going to run as it did for six or seven years. And they don't want you, <laughs> you know, turning into an old person. And Fran knew I was trying to start a directing career. And so in the middle of the second season, she said to me, if you will commit to observing on our show and, you know, don't take any acting work, just come every week and sit there and learn. I'll make sure that you get one episode to direct at the end of the season. And maybe you can use that to launch a directing career. So I did. I sat there from November until February. And then in February, they said, we want you to direct next week's show. You know, because Lee, who was the director, had decided that she didn't want to come back for the third season. So I said, oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> so I directed the episode where, um, where Charles gets a has to have an appendectomy and Fran pretends to be a nurse and sneaks in and, you know, and it, it, it got the biggest laugh spread of any nanny they had done up till that point. And so after that show, they offered me the entire third season, which if, you know, if you know anything about sitcoms there, there's a rotation of directors. Nobody has the same director for a whole season, much less three whole seasons, but Fran liked the continuity of one person. And, um, you know, we, we knew each other very, very well. And she knew I, I had her back in every, every way possible. So um, it, was a, it was a great three years. That's a wonderful story. And, and how great that you got to work with her. I mean, you've worked with so many amazing people throughout your career. Amazing, yes. Yes, and I mean. The guest stars we had on The Nanny. I mean, Elizabeth Taylor did an episode. Milton Berle did an episode. Donald Trump did an episode <laughs> of The Nanny with his then wife, Marla Maples. <laughs> when he was writing for president of the New York Times, Washington Post and Vanity Fair all called me up wanting to know, you know, if I had any stories about Donald Trump uh, <laughs> when I directed him on The Nanny. And I, I said, listen, I, he's going to be president. I don't say anything about that. <laughs> wise, wise answer. Well, yeah. let's take a, uh, a quick break. And when we come back, let's uh, talk about some lessons learned that you've learned throughout your life and career. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Dorothy Lyman. Priceline presents Go to Your Happy Price. What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. You can see yourself already there. It's beautiful. It might be sunny and sandy for some, neon and urban for others, deserts or rainforests or hiking trails. With Priceline, you can get to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else. Like up to 60% off select hotels to Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to Priceline.com and travel to your happy place for a happy price. All right, see ya. I'm off to Miami. No, actually, wow, look at that. No, I I'm going to Hawaii now. Ooh, Cancun looks nice. You know what? Belize looks pretty nice this time of year. Or, mmm, Palm Springs. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. For the fourth year in a row, Don is partnering with iHeartRadio for Can't Cancel Pride, a campaign that has raised over $11 million for the LGBTQ plus community. Don continuously strives to celebrate visibility and inclusivity for all, and that means supporting amazing organizations like Centerlink, providing safe spaces where over 52,000 community members go each week to receive critical and life-saving services. Don is there for your home, or your home away from home. So visit Can'tCancelPride.com to learn more. 
everybody, it's Dorothy Lyman, and you are listening to Bearing It All with Call Me Adam. And now we're back. So let's talk about some lessons learned. Um, what is one mistake you made early on in your career that became a life lesson you take with you to this day? I wasn't always gracious and I didn't keep up with people. You know, I didn't keep uh, in touch. And it's very important in our business because it's about networking. It's about being on people's minds and staying connected. And so I regret that. I also regret that I didn't really, you know, I had three kids. I I had a, a lot else going on. I wasn't I didn't have the singleness of purpose that I believe a big star needs to have to perpetuate a career. I just assumed since people dug what I was doing, that it would go on forever, that I didn't need to make sure I had really a top-notch agent, that I kept a press agent on the payroll, you know, uh, I, 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 that I should have had a manager as well. I should have built a team around me. And that's what I would encourage any young actor to do, you know, um, especially while you're on a show, because once that show ends, the network publicist no longer takes care of you, you know. Mm. I also wish, <laughs> I mean, I look at pictures of my young self and I'm like, God, you are good looking, <laughs> you know. But I didn't, I didn't realize that, that, that one had, um, you know, that there were ways to monetize one's look, you know, with the Noxzema ad or something like that. You know, nobody was really minding the store. And also when I was making a lot of money, it went to my kids' tuitions and um, childcare and, and things like that. I didn't buy a shopping mall in Cleveland like Vicky. <laughs> now you know uh i i didn't um so so the seeds of something that could support me during the down times of of acting mm. Mm. you know it's a business and i didn't look at it that way yes that's a very important lesson to learn and one that is very important for everyone to hear that it is a business and you do have to find multiple ways to have like different streams of income to keep supporting you during those down times. Yep. Yes. Uh, have you ever been fired from a show? And if so, what did that moment teach you? <laughs> you know, um, I was understudying in a production of two Ibsen plays that Claire Bloom put on uh, off Broadway and gosh, maybe 1978 or nine. And I was understudying like six roles, three in each play, but they were like the maid and the grandmother. And I was like 28 years old or something. I mean, I was completely inappropriate for these roles. And, but the director was a friend and said, you know, you want to make an easy payday. You'll never have to go on. Just come here and be the understudy. Well, uh, so then they had an understudy rehearsal. And of course, the, the producer, uh, Hilly Elkins, who was Clara's husband at the time, came and watched the rehearsal. And boy, I was like fired immediately. 
because I was completely wrong for the roles, you know. But all I was really doing was was like um, doing Pat Elliott's hair, you know, who was in it every night. I mean, I was like, they're they're firing me, you know, from basically sitting backstage and keeping people company, you know. So, but it it. Um, it hurt terribly, you know, it's just terrible to be told to let go, even if you were completely wrong for what you were doing and they were right to fire me. <laughs> yes. What is something you wish you could tell your younger self that would have saved you from a mistake or heartache, actually either in your life or in your career? Well, you know, I had two marriages, you know, one of them for 12 years and one of them for 20 years, but neither of them went the whole distance. And, um, you know, I also don't think I was particularly attentive mother because I was wanted my career mm-hmm. so much. So my first husband really raised Emma and Sebastian. And, you know, that was unnecessary. I now see that you can have, um, you can have people help you with your kids. You don't have to leave them in the country, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the country house and, yes. you know, so that's what I would say is just take a breath and get some help. You know, don't yes. get so overwhelmed that you have to leave something. <laughs> and lastly, in the lessons learned, uh, what is something that was originally a challenge for you during the pandemic, but actually became a great experience? Well, writing the play came out of the pandemic. I mean, I always thought of myself as kind of a, um, a foot soldier in our business. I never thought of myself as you know, any kind of visionary or artist, really, or, you know, it was just work for me. And so I don't mean to sound pretentious about it, but um, I was able to make something wonderful for me and for the people that have been working on this with me. And believe me, it's taken a village to put on some Zoom plays. You wouldn't believe it's like. 14 people are on the staff of this project. And also it, it, it gave me time with my family, you know, really with my, my granddaughter, who I really became very, very close to during that time, my 11 year old. And, um, and also it made me learn how to do things on my computer, like this interview, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you know, so I could stay connected and have my rehearsals and do the things. So um it's, it's been a very productive pandemic for me. Yeah. That's terrific. Yeah. So we're, um, we're already at the end of the interview. So oh my I, gosh. I know. So I, know. I always end my interviews playing off of the title of my podcast, Bearing It All with Call Me Adam. So I know you have revealed a lot today, but if you could bear it all and reveal something about yourself that you haven't talked about previously, what would you share with me today? Part of me says, if you haven't told anybody that, why on earth would you say that today? You know what I mean? It's, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, there are, you know, well, not dark secrets, but, you know, there, there are certain regrets, mostly about uh, my small children. They're now my daughter's going to be 50. My son is 47. So I don't know why I'm still tortured by the idea that I let their dad raise them while I chased my dreams, you know, so I guess that that that's probably the thing that haunts me the most. And also that my second husband died before I could get over being angry at him and have a relationship with him because I have a great relationship with my first husband, the father of the two older children, but the father, the French father of my youngest son, uh, you know, I just never got over our divorce, really. And now that he's dead, there's no chance. And that's 
too bad. So just clean things up while you can, everybody. Yeah. I, I sure hope that people will will find um, our project either on broadwayondemand.com or we have our own website. It's we have to hurry.com and that'll tell you everything you want to know about it. Terrific. Well, I'm going to put that in the text of the podcast as well so people can easily find it. Well, this has been terrific. And so uh, as we just said, everybody listening, tune in on June 5th and 6th to um, We Have to Hurry and uh, go to wehavetohurry.com to get your tickets. And uh, we look forward to seeing this uh, then and then in the months after, because like you said, it's going to be once a month. And also always remember here at the Broadway Podcast Network, we have thousands of hours of art and theater related podcasts. And don't forget to download our app so you can take us on the go and uh, keep listening. He'll get the dirt and the scoop and the story for he happens to be in the know. Just ask anybody who's had him, had him, live for the business of show. Callmeadam.com. Find more episodes of Bearing It All with Call Me Adam everywhere you stream podcasts. For my print and video interviews, visit my website, callmeadam.com. Follow me on social media at callmeadamnyc on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And finally, if you really want to get involved, support my podcast on a deeper level by becoming a member of my Patreon family. Visit patreon.com slash callmeadamnyc. There, you'll get a variety of backstage perks, including advance notice of interviews, the ability to submit a question to my guests, and everyone's favorite, swag. 